I want to say good evening and welcome to chapter 10 of our Hebrew seminar. And as we go into chapter 10, I'd like to have a special prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray in Jesus' name that as we open the word of God that you will speak to our hearts and that indeed we will see the message that you have for us. Give us clear thinking, understanding, and above all, Lord, give us conviction that we may take a stand for the truths we know. In Jesus' name, amen. The 10th chapter of Hebrews, actually, the first part of that, verses 1 through 18, technically should go along with chapter 9. Because those verses carry the same theme forward that it was talking about last week. And so as we look at this, you can see that there's a carryover of thought. You've got to remember that the chapters and verses were not divinely inspired. They were put in by men. The original languages didn't have chapters and verses. So sometimes they don't put them exactly where they should be. As we look at verse 18, we'll see that verse 18 is more of a natural breaking point between the thoughts that are presented. Let's look at Hebrews 10.1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law was a shadow of things to come. What's it talking about? It's talking about the law that presented what the Messiah would do. They were foreshadowing his work. And so the law having a shadow of good things to come indicate that this law is pointing ahead, not behind. The moral law reflects back to creation. Ceremonial law points ahead to the future, to a better sacrifice, a better high priest, better sanctuary, better covenant. And the ceremonial was only a model or it was a uh, prototype to try to get across to the people what the Messiah's work was going to be all about. So the ceremonial mentioned here would be replaced because it could not bring about a mature, full, complete, perfected atonement. And look at verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. What's it basically saying? It's saying that if the blood of animals was sufficient, you wouldn't have needed the judgment, because they would have received forgiveness by presenting the blood offering. But that blood remained in the tabernacle because right from the beginning it was meant to be temporary. If animal sacrifices were sufficient to cleanse our sins, they would have continued. We wouldn't have needed the second covenant. After the sacrifice, the sinner would have been forgiven and no record would remain. No judgment would have been necessary. But because man cannot save himself. He needed a savior. Look at uh, 10.3. But in those sacrifices, 
there is a remembrance again made of, of sins every year. So as they repeated this year by year, they were remembering that they were sinners in need of cleansing. However, the fact that the yearly day of atonement was necessary for the cleansing of the accumulated blood offerings of the previous 12 months, it demonstrated that the record of those sins remained in the heavenly sanctuary long after the sinner had offered up his lamb and returned home forgiven. Only when the yearly cleansing took place was the record removed, which symbolized divine cleansing by the blood of the Lamb. 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. It was only meant to be symbolic, just like the communion service. The communion service, when we have the bread and the, the grape juice, he tells us to partake of it in remembrance of him, as a reminder. And he said, I won't eat this meal with you again till we get in the kingdom. So by doing it, it's to remind us that someday we're going to actually sit down with Jesus in the kingdom and partake of that meal. And so this was of a similar vein. Animal blood could only serve as a symbol of the human atonement. It took a bridge between the divine and the human to bring reconciliation of the two. It was a God-man whose blood had to atone for our salvation. Christ had to take on humanity to die for us. I was giving a Bible study this week to a fellow who, uh, he had been attending the Way Ministry. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. But... Um, they had taught him that Jesus was not divine. And if Jesus was not divine, really, how could he be the bridge between heaven and earth, the link? Not only that, if he was not divine, then he just had human blood that was shed. And how could he be resurrected? By what power? You see... The scripture says that he was resurrected in his own power. His father called him, but he was resurrected in his own power. And so we find that there's a lot that undermines the plan of salvation that is being circulated today. Look at uh, 10.5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body... Hast thou prepared me? A body hast thou prepared me. We talked about this text before. Paul's used it in earlier parts of Hebrews. Here Paul quotes from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. He's quoting from of Psalms 40, 6-8. And this is, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's what Paul was using when he was writing to the Hebrews probably because he was writing to Hebrews that were spread throughout the empire. And a lot of them had forgotten the Hebrew language. And so he used the common language at the time. In the King James, you notice that Psalm 46 through 8 is different. Why? The one in the Old Testament 
was taken from the Masoretic Hebrew text, whereas Paul here is quoting from the Septuagint. So it's phrased a little differently. It says, a body thou hast prepared for me. But if you look at the Hebrew text, it says, my ears have opened. Well, there's a little bit of difference there. Of course, your ears are part of your body anyway. But nonetheless, they were ready to listen. Paul chose this version because it was most familiar to his hearers. Let's look at 10.6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Notice that God really didn't have pleasure in seeing all these animals die. There are some who claim that God was bloodthirsty. No. Blood had to be the penalty for sin to impress upon human beings how terrible sin is in the eyes of God. But notice that these sacrifices were not acceptable. Why? Because they were not mixed with faith. But when they offered up those sacrifices with faith, beautiful in God's sight, it's a sweet-smelling savor, not flesh burning of animals, is uh, savory in the uh, uh, nose of God. It's the faith that went with it that was important. And notice that isn't interested in constant blood sacrifices. He wants a one-time offering for all eternity. And this is another reason why he doesn't want to scatter it out forever and ever and ever, constantly having to offer up Christ. Because Christ's sacrifice was once. And if we are literally sacrificing Christ, as in the Mass, why, this is displeasing to God. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 7. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Here in Hebrews 10, 7, it says that in the Old Testament, it was written about him. Jesus says, you study the scriptures, and in them you think you have life. But they are they which testify of me. He was talking to the Jewish leaders who were Jewish scholars. They were scholars of the scripture. And they thought that they had eternal life because of who they were. But he says, Study the scriptures, and you will see that they're talking about me, that I am the way of salvation and life. And so we find in the book, or in the scroll, or the volume of the scriptures, today we could say in God's computer, you know, what was he looking for? The obedience Messiah's birth is foretold. It was telling that he would not only come the first time, but he would come a second time. Look at Hebrews 10. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings of sin thou wouldst not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. When it's saying offered by the law, the law required it. But they were doing it mechanically. And God didn't take delight in that. Because righteousness by faith is the message behind that law. It was the message behind the ceremonial law, and it got lost track of. 
a lot of times we do the same thing today. You can do the right things for the wrong motives. You can do good things, but for the wrong purposes. And this is where they went astray. Let's look at verse 10.8. It says, he elaborates that what the ceremonial law provides for, God no longer wants or finds pleasure in them. Has he changed his mind? No, he hasn't changed his mind at all. His mind has always been that this was an object lesson to be done, mingled with faith and helped them to have greater faith as they understood it and studied it. What was changed is the place and function for these offerings. They are now obsolete after Jesus' death. Therefore, their continuation is not pleasing to God. They become obsolete, and they have to go by the wayside. In Hebrews 10:9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The first ceremonial system, the tabernacle, where they met to uh, perform these services, while that tabernacle was still in operation, the heavenly tabernacle could not kick into gear. The first one had to become obsolete and fall by the wayside before the heavenly one took over. And that's why we find Jesus inaugurated at Pentecost. On earth, you get the earthly church going forward with the priesthood of believers. At the same time, Jesus moves forward as our heavenly high priest in the new sanctuary in heaven. It's not new. It's older than the old. That's one thing I, that really impresses me, and I, I hope it impresses you. And that is what we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. The New Testament is actually older than the Old Testament, you see. Because Abraham, before they ever reached Mount Sinai with Moses, before they ever received the ceremonial law, Abraham was offering sacrifices and he became a friend of God because of faith. So it was righteousness by faith. And even in the ceremonial system, it was supposed to be righteousness by faith being brought out in the ceremonial system. But it fell by the wayside. And then it's reestablished or rediscovered later on. Yet the prophets talked about righteousness by faith. Christ came to abolish the first system and begin the work of the second system. Look at 10.10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I keep hitting that point. Once for all. That's what was sufficient. Christ's body was offered up for all times for all people. He died for the whole world. This is the reason why a lot of people say, yes, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. That's wonderful. Because he died for the whole world. I'm sure Adolf Hitler, he died for Adolf if Adolf had accepted him. But the second part of that is, is he your Lord? Jesus, your sacrifice is what he did for you. 
but Jesus, your Lord, is what he's doing in you and through you to reach others, you see? One, he's working in us to reach out to others. And the first way, it's what he did for everyone. He made the path to salvation for those who would accept it. We are set apart. Notice that. It said we are sanctified. So we are set apart or sanctified through his personal suffering and death in the body once for all time. Now, over in the Philippines every year, Gani Kapina was telling me, and when I was over there the second time, um, South Corquinas, we were with them, and um, we left a little bit too early because I think it was the next day they were going to reenact for the Easter weekend, they were going to reenact the crucifixion. And they actually had people drag crosses through town and literally be nailed to a cross and hang in the sun and just bake there for hours until the specified time was up. And in so doing, they were presenting themselves as sacrifices to God for sin. You don't have to do that. Jesus came and did it for you. He crucified your flesh in his own, you see. And we don't have to do that. We have to accept his sacrifice as sufficient for all time. Look at Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Human beings, whether they're offering blood of animals or whatever they're doing, the best of our deeds cannot do a thing to gain us salvation. And look at verse 10 and 11. It says, It is futile for earthly priests to continue in ineffective ritual. Now, Hebrews 10.12 says this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this is important, that after he offered himself as a sacrifice, Jesus returned back to heaven. Where did he go? A few years back, there was a theologian by the name of uh, Desmond Ford who said that when Jesus went back to heaven, he went into the most holy place. But is that where Jesus went? Because what does it say right there? It says he sat down on the right hand of God. Where is Jesus in the most holy place? He's standing before the Father. Where's the only place he can sit at the right hand of the Father? That's in the holy place, the outer court, the table of showbread representing the throne of God in that part of the temple, the the, uh, tabernacle. Two piles of bread. Sure, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, but they also symbolized the throne of the Father and the Son in that part of the sanctuary. This is where the daily prayers, the daily sacrifices, the daily blood was sprinkled. 
The most holy place was entered only once a year. And what does it say? It's saying that he was in the holy place and making atonement and getting forgiveness for our sins. And even though he forgave your sin, your sin is still recorded on that veil that separates the two apartments until the Day of Atonement, the final cleansing. And it's based around our relationship with Jesus. Notice what it says here. After his death and resurrection, Christ sat down at the right hand of God. The high priest stands before the mercy seat, the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the tabernacle, which is God's inner throne. Only the table of showbread in the holy place, or the daily part of the sanctuary, had two piles of bread side by side, symbolizing the throne of the Father and the Son side by side. Apparently, Christ went into the holy place, not the most holy place, after his resurrection, and he began his high priestly ministry. Following the pattern that was brought out in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus would tell what Christ would do. I know I was in college, folks. How many of you ever heard my conversion story? I had been a member of two prominent churches, denominations. I was 19, turning 20, and I had never heard of the second coming of Christ. I had never heard of it. And when I asked my minister about it, he said, oh, we believe in the second coming of Christ, but he's not going to come for a thousand years yet, so why get the people all worked up? Well, he never even told us that much. And I was in church almost every week. And I never heard that subject before. I didn't know Genesis from Revelation. And it wasn't until I started studying the scriptures that I began to realize, hey, when Jesus left the earth and went back to heaven, I didn't have the slightest idea what he was doing up there. All I knew was he went back to heaven And someday when I die, I'm going to go be with him. But what's he doing between now and then? Eating bonbons? I don't know what he's doing up there, you know? And you don't hear people talk much about what Jesus is doing after his ascension to heaven. But the book of Hebrews is very eloquent in telling us that he is administering his blood in your behalf and my behalf. And that's what the whole purpose of this chapter is. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies are made his footstool. In plain words, when the, the wicked are defeated. You know, it was very common, not only among the Hebrews, but among a lot of the tribes of the East, when they defeated a king, the conquering king, would sit down on his throne and make the defeated king kneel before him and make him a hassock that he'd put his feet up on. Remember, I've told you before, your feet are your lowest uh, esteemed part of your body. And by putting his feet on top of the enemy, it's showing that he is victorious and he has crushed his power. And so when it says, his enemies become his footstool. 
It's saying that Satan loses and Christ wins, you see. Look at this note here. It's 110 verse 1 is again referred to here. Christ waits until the gospel is preached in the whole world and his people perfectly reflect his loving, self-sacrificing character before he returns as conquering king to deliver his people from his enemies. Stop and think about it. What is it that God wants to do? He wants to raise up a people who will reflect his character perfectly. Now, I mean, God is God. You know, he can create things and perform miracles. We can't do those things. But it says we should be perfect even as the Father is perfect, right? If you look at that, that's a relative term. If we could be as perfect as God, we would be gods, you see? But the word perfect is a relative term. A perfect dog is a dog that does everything a dog should do. And as I mentioned before, a perfect baby is just the cutest little thing and it dribbles all over you and it drops things on the floor. But you still love it and you say, he's the perfect baby. Even though he's goo-goo and messing his diapers. But do you want that baby to stay that way? You want that baby to grow. Because when he's 35 years old and he's still drooling and throwing things on the floor and in diapers and uh, eating pablum, you say, hey, he hasn't matured. And this is what he is saying. He wants us to grow in a self-sacrificing character, a character of love. What Christ is looking for is a loving and lovable Christian. Some people are very loving, but they're not lovable. Some people are lovable, but they're really not loving. I know it sounds contradictory, but I've run across a few. He wants a people who will reflect the character of Christ. And he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. It says, then his opponents will be totally defeated at the brightness of his coming. And in the final hellfire, they will be destroyed when all things will be made new again. Those who do not reflect the character of Christ, they will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. But because he wants a people who are a loving character who will stand up for the truth, as you lift up Christ in your life, you will draw people to you. And that's part of what my testimony is about that I gave in Albany, New York. I was not an Adventist when I was in high school. I had a Catholic high school guidance counselor send me to Atlantic Union College to study song, dance, and show business. You know, and instead of that, what did the Lord do? He gave me a Bible. He gave me a Bible instead of a a Hollywood contract. And you can see that the Lord has a sense of humor too. (laughs) But as you look at this, what drew me to Christ? When I went there, I thought these Adventist people, they were strange birds. 
They ate funny. They went to church on the wrong day. Uh, they, they did a lot of things that were strange. But you know what? As I watched them, I didn't let them know I was not an Adventist. I just did what they did, and I thought, I'm going to go undercover and just watch them. And you know what? It was the influence of my friends and my teachers who knew what they believed, believed what they knew, and they lived up to it. I knew how to handle the kids that I ran into in high school, and you run into some of those in our schools too, you know, that get in trouble all the time. Hey, I can understand them. But these kids who did what was right because it was right, I said, they've got something I don't have. And my friends, why? Because they were lifting up the character of Christ and reflecting his glory. And they didn't even know it. They were not conscious of it. But I was. I was watching. And people have a right to look at your life. If you profess to be a Christian, they have a right to look at your life to see if you're for real or you're a phony. Hebrews 10:14 says, "For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified." Now, he's saying that the people are sanctified through Christ. Now, it's interesting that the word sanctified, sanctuary come from the same root. It means to set apart, to dedicate, to make holy. Why are these people sanctified? Because they have a sanctified message. Let's face it, you and I are just like everybody else in the world. What makes us different? It's the message that we we carry. And when we stop carrying that message... We're going to be like the rest of them. You know, there were a lot of the Jewish boys who went into captivity with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they gave in. They ate of the king's food and did the things that were required by peer pressure. But it was only those who stood out that the Bible remembers. The rest of them got forgotten in history. So this is what God is saying. He wants a people... Uh, a peculiar people. And the word peculiar means special treasure. Let's look at 1014. He has forever perfected or atoned for those who are being sanctified. Now notice, being sanctified. I've had people say, I remember I was 10 years old. I went up to the altar and gave my heart to the Lord. And, okay, what's happened between 10 years old and 50 years old? Are we still coasting on our experience at 10? Or have we been growing daily? Are we daily being sanctified? Are we daily growing in the Lord and making him the Lord of our lives? And this does not leave the impression of a past experience, but an ongoing process. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Just when you think you've got everything all cleaned up, you look in the mirror and you find that you missed a spot. And you get that all cleaned up, and then, whoops, I didn't look over here. I got another spot. And the Lord drives us to the washcloth, which is Jesus. 
A mirror can't take the dirt off your face. It can just show you the dirt. That's what the law is for. Jesus is the washcloth. He's the one that's able to take it off your face. And so we find that this doesn't give us the impression that this is a past experience, but an ongoing process. This reflects a daily abiding in Christ. I want you to keep that term in mind. Abiding in Christ. It means sticking with him. Progressive salvation rather than a once saved, always saved philosophy. We are, that's why if people come up and they say, are you saved? Um, it sounds like it's a past experience. What I usually do, if somebody asks me that, I say, yes, by the grace of God, I am daily being saved. Daily, when I make a mistake, I can come to him and confess that sin. And it wipes the dirt off my life. And I can move on. Even though we may fall, we can still come to him. And he will forgive us and help us to be victors. And so this is what this is referring to. Let's look at this little note. Notice that the Holy Spirit can speak and witness. He is a personal being rather than an impersonal force or influence. When it says before, it indicates that he has already been active in the past. Even in the time of Jeremiah, for Jeremiah uh, 31, 33, and 34 are about to be quoted in this next verse. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds will I write them. Now, Jeremiah was saying the same thing. Instead of having the Ten Commandments in stone on the walls of buildings, even schools, we said, well, we need to tack up the Ten Commandments in the schools so the kids will know them. That's great. But if they're on the wall, that isn't where you want them. You want them in the heart. You want them in the mind. It's not objective. It's to be subjective experience. This is what God wants. I'm not against them being put up on the wall. The only thing I find, though, matter of fact, when I was in the UP, I went to a a meeting, town hall meeting that they had, because there were some preachers who were pushing that they tack up the Ten Commandments in the school on the wall. And the the um, the town fathers, they they were leaning in that direction. And I got up and I asked, I said, I think it's wonderful, but we want them in our hearts. And I said, but my question is, whose commandments are you going to put up there? If you look in the catechism, they're different than the ones that you find in the scripture. And when you put that up, when it comes to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What day is the Sabbath day that you want to keep holy? You go to the scripture and it spells it out. Now, do you want to take the commandments from the scriptures and tack them on the wall? That's fine. But pretty soon, the kids are going to come home and say, Hey, Mom, how come we go to church on Sunday when the scripture says we should go on Saturday? And when I pointed that out to them, 
they decided to table the whole thing. And as far as I know, it never came back up again because they were opening a can of worms, you see. Not only that, but there were other of those commandments, thou shalt not kill. Okay, well, how's that going to affect abortion and some of these other things? How was it going to uh, some of these other commandments? They realized, matter of fact, one of the, one of the uh, people on the council said, you know, if we do this, I can see lawsuits in the making. And so as a result, they didn't do it. If we're going to put something up, let it be scriptural rather than the commandments of men, you see. And the world, as Christ is lifted, he will draw people to him. And that's another point I brought out. I said, you know, for years, preachers have been telling us that the Ten Commandments are done away with. And then you wonder why the kids are getting abortions and why they're, they're stealing and everything. We have all this crime. You've told them the law has been done away with. Now you want to tack it up on the wall, and the one you want to tack up isn't even the one that's in the Bible. You see, you've told them that's no longer binding. And we need to be careful that we are not professing one thing and doing another. It's the Holy Spirit who moves upon the prophets to write the scriptures. He's the author of the Bible as well as the interpreter of it, according to Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. It demonstrates that God's original plan was put uh, to put his law in the conscience and the lives of men, not leaving them on tables of stone. This Christ came to do. He fulfilled or completed to the maximum all that the law intended to accomplish. The law should be ingrained in your life, in your conscience. It should be such that we would rather die than to sin against God. That's what he's after. He wants that kind of loyalty, you see. But it's the Holy Spirit who moved these men to write these things that are in the Scripture. And when it says, he fulfilled or completed to the maximum all that the law required, he set an example for us, and we are to follow it. He was the prototype of the, the model for us. Hebrews 10, 17, it says, And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Isn't that nice that God has selective forgetfulness? I will remember them no more. He tells us to remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But your sins I will remember no more. You see, the Holy Spirit adds a promise of conscious forgetfulness by choosing to forget the sins of those who love and live the law and the new covenant that was just mentioned. And so Hebrews 10.18 goes on. It says, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So where there is forgiveness for your sin, that sin doesn't exist anymore. God has forgiven it. This is where we need to have faith in him and abide by him and claim his promises. 10, 
18, notice what it talks about, remission. Here, the way it's used, it means forgiveness. Where there is forgiveness, the record is cleansed and the evidence no longer exists to condemn a man. He is acquitted and is no longer a lawbreaker. Therefore, there is no longer a need for a sin offering. If the President of the United States, say you're a criminal on death row, if the governor or the President of the United States extends to you a pardon, even if you confess that, I did it, I did it, I did it, they can't prosecute you unless they find new evidence or you did something else that they can nab you on, but they can't try you for that again. You are once for all acquitted. As far as God is concerned, it's as though you never committed it once he forgives you. But he's not going to forgive somebody who is uh, not sincere, one who's trying to get away with something. No, that's playing games with God. God reads the heart. You know, the devil can read your actions, but he can't read your mind. The devil can't read your mind, but he's used to your idiosyncrasies. And he knows what you're thinking because he's seen your body language in the past when you were thinking like that. But the devil, what he can't see, what he can only guess at, Jesus could read the mind of the Pharisees and the rulers. Why? Because he was divine. Now, that took us through the first 18 verses. That's the part that should have been connected with chapter 9 because he was talking about some of these things, the sacrifices, the covenants, and so forth before. Now when we get to chapter, I mean, verse 19, 19 through 39, there's a little change here, a shift. And notice that verses 19 through 29 actually belong with all of chapter 11 in thought. Chapter 11 talks about the characters who trusted God. All right, really, that foretells some of what he's going to talk about there. And then the theme of that whole part is the just shall live by faith. Going back to righteousness by faith again. Now, verses 10 through 25, chapter 10, verse 25 and after, it leads up to the fourth warning. Remember, there are five major warnings. The fourth warning of the book of Hebrews. And they admonish the believer to hold fast to his confession of faith and be steadfast against apostasy. And then when we get to verse 26 to 39, it will elaborate more on that warning, which is the danger found in drawing back from the truth as is found in Christ. Okay? Hebrews 10:19 let's look at it Having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Wow even the high priest didn't go into the the sanctuary he didn't go into the holy place or the most holy place until he was sure that his sins were forgiven But he says we can boldly come right in why if we accept Christ's blood, because Christ has already paid the price of our access to the Father. Verse 10, 19, it 
Notice it starts talking about therefore. When we see a therefore, you can see that he's going to change. He's going to have a shift here. But he's going to draw some conclusions about his earlier remarks. And in Christ, we may come boldly into the Father's presence with confidence and faith in an accepting relationship with God. Regardless of the word, uh, regarding the word holiest, uh, William Johnson makes the following observation. But before I I show you what Johnson says, I want to just comment on that. Uh, He's drawing conclusions about the previous remarks, about Jesus being our sacrifice. But notice it says, we can come into the presence of God with confidence and faith. We don't have to be afraid of God. He's our friend. He loves us. You know, uh, when our grandkids come, and we, we, we just enjoyed ourselves, we had over a week with, uh, almost two weeks, with a good portion of our, our ten grandkids. Uh, I didn't do it this year, but we have family reunion every two years. But two years ago when we had a family reunion, you know, when you're in your 70s, to go out and play capture the flag in 89, 90-degree weather for three and a half hours, uh, it's a little much. But you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the kids couldn't wait to get to our house because they were excited to do it. And here, we, we should be excited to be able to come into the presence of God as feeble and as, as sinful as we are because Jesus has cleared the way for us. And God loves us as a result of it. Anyway, let's look at what Bill Johnson says. The term which we wrestle is tahagia, which, with its variants, occur a total of ten times in the New Testament. All of them in the book of Hebrews. Tahagia is a neuter plural, and it means literally the holy things or the holy places. That's what it means. And as we list the ten occurrences of the term, and you have it in the handout I gave you. I don't have it on the slides. I couldn't get all those to fit on there, so you have them in there. But if we look at the ten occurrences of this term and the variants with translations from the New International Version, the Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, we begin to see some of the difficulties that people have. And Adventists oftentimes have difficulty in being able to present this to people because they don't understand it. The Septuagint, helps to clarify the confusion. And Johnson says, where the apostle's reasoning clearly indicates that he is referring to a particular apartment, we can feel free to designate Tahagia with its variants to mean the holy place, designated by holy place or most holy place. However, where the context leaves his meaning uncertain, then it's wise to translate it merely as sanctuary. Hagia, Hagion, refers to the most holy place. 
because it lay behind the second curtain and it contains the Ark of the Covenant, the stone tablets, and the cherubim. So this term, Hagia Hagion, when the scripture says we can come into the holy place, it depends how you use that word, whether it's talking about the most holy place, the holy place, or it doesn't mean the sanctuary in its entirety. You see? You have to look at the way it's used in its context. And this is the reason why when it says Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, he doesn't do that in the outer court. He doesn't do that in the most holy place. He does it in the holy place. All right. Hebrews 10.20. By a new and living way, which he hath uh, consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say his, his flesh. <clears throat> Notice in by his identifying with human flesh, he saved humanity and thus brought our flesh before the Father. This is, this is the reason why it's important that we understand that Jesus literally took on human flesh. He was 100% human, but he was also 100% divine. You know, a hundred and a hundred is supposed to equal two hundred in our mathematics. But in God's mathematics, one hundred percent and one hundred percent equals one hundred percent. He was fully man and fully divine. And so what does he do? He brings our humanity before the Father and makes humanity acceptable in the eyes of God. That's why we can, through him, come boldly to the Father. Look at Hebrews ten, twenty-one. That's why when we pray... We should pray to the Father in the name of the Son, asking for the Holy Spirit, you see. In so doing, we are putting our petitions right before the throne of God through Christ. Otherwise, we'd have no right to do that. Hebrews 10.21, uh, And having an high priest over the house of God. Now, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it's uh, is referred to here. Christ the high priest is over the house of God of which we are a part. It might be better to say the household of God. In 10.22 it says, Let us draw near with a, a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now notice, I want you to notice this word draw. Here we find that God wants us to draw near to God with a true heart. He's going to warn against drawing back. You see? In plain words, instead of coming to God, we pull away from God. And when a person starts backsliding, that's just the first step. It's not talking about simple backsliding. Is talking about pulling away from God, which we'll talk about in a, a moment. And notice what else it says here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That's called faith. Full assurance. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I know a priest will sometimes take water and sprinkle it on the various objects. He's not talking about that. Yes, the water of the Holy Spirit, but also in the heavenly, I mean, in the earthly tabernacle, 
they would sprinkle blood on some of these things. Our hearts and our minds should be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and the water of the Holy Spirit. And if so, that is the pure water. That's the holy water, the Holy Spirit. Look at 10.22 again. It says, abiding in Christ by faith, it gives us full assurance of salvation. Our hearts, our conscience, our bodies are washed clean by the baptism of the water, the Spirit, and the blood. 10.23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful, that promise. Because God's faithful, we need to be firm. Abide in Christ. What's he saying? That we shouldn't be faint or wavering. This means flip-flopping. You know, we're with God one day, and the next day, well, God's against me, and so forth. Then we come back to God again, and then we go back to the world. We have faith, and then we doubt, and then we have faith, and then we doubt. We're flip-flopping. God said, hey, I said it. When are you going to believe it? You know? And this is what he wants us to do. Again, Paul admonishes backsliders to be faithful in a, to a faithful God. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Now, when we say, oh, you provoked me, that means you got me to do something wrong. But that isn't what the word provoke means. Provoke simply means you, uh, to motivate you. In plain words, we are to uh, consider what is good for one another and encourage them to walk in the light of truth, the light of faith. Come on, brother, you can make it. Ah, oh, you goofed, you fell down, but let me help you up. Let me help you dust yourself off, and we'll walk down the road together. This is what he wants for us. And then verse 10, 24. By putting others first out of a love motive, God works will follow. Without even thinking about it, we will start doing the works of God. Look at Hebrews 10, 25. Now, this is a very interesting text. A lot of people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, then you don't have to go to church to be a devil. You see, you can, you, can, you can do either. But a lot of people use that as an excuse for not going to church. Well, notice what it says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some uh, is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The second coming of Christ. As we see ourselves moving toward end times, we should try not only to go to church or to assemble together for our own strengthening, but it says so that we can strengthen others. There's, you know, I think 3ABN is a great blessing. And there have been times when we've been sick or something, couldn't go to church, we'd watch 3ABN. It was a great blessing. But there are some who use 3ABN as a crutch so that they don't have to go to church. And they don't have to interact with other people. 
They don't have to share their tithes and offerings either. They don't have to witness. They don't have to fellowship. Now, there's nothing wrong with 3ABN. It's the attitude of the person toward it. And so here it says that we shouldn't forsake uh, getting together, as some do, but we should be exhorting, encouraging, and building the faith of others. That's what God wants us to do. The world is getting worse, and as it gets worse, we need to encourage one another. We need to encourage people to be faithful and to hang in there. Why? Because we see the day approaching, and God wants us to take the gospel to the world. As we see the day of Christ's return approaching, this verse warns his people not to abandon assembling together. Even if others backslide and give up the church and the faith, you be faithful. You be faithful. How many times people say, oh, I don't, I've actually heard people say, oh, I don't go to that church. They're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. My response to that is, oh, that's all right. There's room for one more. Right? There's always room for one more hypocrite in the church. What are we to be doing? We are to be assembling together to try to encourage people to be faithful and not walk like hypocrites. But that's true. When people say, well, I don't go to that church because they're all a bunch of hypocrites. What's he saying? I know I'm being a hypocrite, but I don't want to admit that, so I will point at them to say I'm okay, but they're hypocrites. But in reality, if you know what's right and you're not doing what's right, then you are a hypocrite. You know what the word hypocrite means? The word hypocrite means an actor. That's what it is. On television, in the movies, what you're looking at is hypocrites. They're pretending to be somebody they're not, right? And God wants for real people, with all their warts and pimples and everything, God wants them the way they are. He accepts you the way you are, but he never leaves you the way you are. He builds you and improves upon you. Hebrews 10.26 says, well, here we go now, this is the touchy one. People like to uh, debate this one. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Well, what's that saying? Is that saying, well, if I know I shouldn't be doing something and I do it anyway, I'm lost. Is that what that's saying? This is not talking about simple backsliding. This isn't talking about a person who makes an error in judgment. God can forgive that. This is talking about cutting off the Holy Spirit. You know what the truth is and you deliberately turn your back against it. And what do we do? We crucify Christ anew. And when we do that, we cut off the Holy Spirit. And who's the one that convicts you of sin? It's the Holy Spirit. Willfully is not accidentally. Uh, intentional sin carries a death penalty. Rejection of the truth after understanding it 
is to turn from the only Savior and sacrifice for our sins. He's the only way that we can find salvation. And when one who once believed and taught about Christ now starts talking against Christ and teaching others that, he's on very thin ice. There's a fellow in the Bible Paul talks about, I think three different texts, there may be four, where he talks about a fellow named Demas. And when he talks about Demas, he's writing, you know, greetings from all these people that are with me. And he writes, uh, he sends a greeting from Demas, who is my fellow worker. And then another time, he, he sends uh, greetings from Demas. Then another time, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What happened? Demas became to Paul what Judas was to Jesus. He had forsaken the truth, and there's a tradition that says Demas, after he left Christianity, became a priest in a pagan temple. Now, how can one go from being a disciple and working with the Apostle Paul and seeing all these miracles and understanding the deep theology that Paul writes so much about, become a priest in a pagan temple? I think that this falls into harmony with what he's warning against. So, but a certain fearful longing for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. When a person knows what the truth is and they turn from it, there's an inherent nagging in their conscience, an inherent fear. They don't want the judgment to come because they're going to have to answer. That's what it's referring to. Look what else it says. Our conscience will always have a hidden fear of the judgment if we turn from truth. That's why if we are in Christ, we look forward to the judgment. If we are not, we want to get as far from it as we can. Hebrews 10, 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. You know, the Hebrews, even in a murder trial, they could not put you to death unless they had at least Two witnesses. They wouldn't take the word of one witness. They'd have to let you go. But they had to have at least two witnesses. And with Jesus, they had to scrounge around. They asked for a lot of witnesses, and they were all conflicting with one another. They had to find two scoundrels that they could say, say the same thing against him. You see. And so we find that God gives us two witnesses. He gives us the Old Testament. He gives us the New Testament. He gives us the angels. He gives us Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit. My, that's five right there. The court is stacked in our favor, you see, if we are in Christ. With two or three witnesses against him, a man who, who turned from Moses' law was put to death. And, of course, they did it by stoning, which is a very curious thing because 
In the time of Jesus, they couldn't stone him because the Romans were in charge. So the Romans crucified him. But when you come to Stephen, notice that they stoned Stephen. They had the authority from the Sanhedrin to do that, most likely through Paul, who was representing the Sanhedrin. But my question was, were they doing it with or without Roman permission? You know? In Hebrews 10.29, it says this, of how much sorer punishment, but how much more sore would be the punishment, uh, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. In plain words, how much more would we who know the power of the Holy Spirit and God's grace for us to turn from Christ and do the opposite of what the Spirit's telling us? What makes us think we're going to get away with it any more than the wicked did? 10.29, notice it says, by turning from the Savior of the all time is even more serious than not heeding Moses' law. It insults the Holy Spirit. And it makes light of Christ's sacrifice. This is the unpardonable sin. In the scripture, it actually says that, that you can insult the Holy Spirit. When you start insulting the Holy Spirit, he takes offense to that. And that cutting yourself off from the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin. Then 10.30, it says, For We know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, don't forget that Jesus not only died for the human beings, but Jesus died for the whole world. The devil is trying to pervert the animals He's trying through us and through disease to pervert the trees and uh, even nature itself. That's why God makes a new earth and restores it back to its pristine beauty again. And he says, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. So don't get too egotistical and thinking, well, Jesus just died to save human beings. This whole ball that we live on is his property. And he's going to clean house, you see. That's why he burns up all the pollution. Verse 10.30, here's the note on this. Deuteronomy 32.35 and Deuteronomy 32.36 are quoted here by Paul. Here God deals with those who reject Christ. He is the Messiah, the one who fulfills all the promises of God. Verse 31, chapter 10, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this is interesting that Paul uses this term, the living God. That expression is unique in the scriptures. 
And it is the one who uses it in scriptures is Paul. It's a Pauline expression. You don't find John using that expression, the living God, the way Paul does. And it's showing that God is not dead. And you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And if you start taking advantage of his love and start doing that which is evil, you don't want to be on the wrong side of God because God is also going to, in his wrath or in his judgment, he's going to destroy those wicked. We just don't want to be on that side of the tracks when he does it. In Hebrews 10.32, But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction. What he's basically saying is, remember your first love experience. Go back to that first love experience you had with Christ. This is the reason why I love to tell my conversion story. Not because I want to live in the past, but it was such a marvelous thing that God did. And it's, quite frankly, it's the only sermon I can give. Right? I mean, a printed sermon, I could have Cheryl stand up and read it. Uh, I could have Bob stand up and read it. But there's nobody who can give my story the way I lived it, you see. And yours is like that, too. You may not be a Bible scholar. You may not be able to do deep theology or be able to get into all these Bible texts and explain them, but you can tell a simple testimony. This is what I used to be like. This is what I am today. What happened? God got a hold of me. And you know what? Even an atheist can't refute that. How can they refute a personal encounter with God? And basically, this is what he's talking about. We are called to remember those former days. After we are illuminated, we are to fight the good fight of faith. The more we know about the truth, the more we should be standing for it. In their first love experience, the newly converted withstood much persecution. They need to return to that first love experience and endure to the end. He that endureth to the end shall be saved, not those who quit halfway across. Hebrews 10.33 Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. Both they and their friends suffered much for Christ. Maybe you become a gazing stock. Maybe people say to you, boy, look, he, he, he's so silly. Why is he going to church on Saturday when everybody goes to church on Sunday? Uh, why is he eating carrots instead of pork chops? Why is he doing this or that? How come everybody's smoking but him? Do you ever see a person go into a bar and everybody's ordering a drink and they order a glass of milk? Don't you think people would look at him kind of strange? 
you see? And they make comments about you. But you know what? They actually may actually secretly be admiring you that you had the strength and the guts to do what's right, even when they can't. Look at 10.34. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. When I was down and out, when I was being afflicted, you, even though you were poor, even though you were broke, you took what little goods you had and you shared it with me. And God remembers those things. Even when Paul was in jail, they were good to him and they shared with him, though they had little and they had already lost much. And Paul is trying to encourage these people who shared with him now to hold fast and not go back to the Judaism and the temple that they just left. You see, he's concerned for their soul. Hebrews 10.35 Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. In plain words, don't get rid of your faith. Which has great recompense of reward. God is going to give you a great reward if you remain faithful. Having come so far, don't quit on Christ and the church now, especially when the end is so near and all that has been hoped for is about to materialize. Verse 36, for ye have need of patience. Now, the word patience means steadfast. You have need of steadfastness. In plain words, hang in there. That after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. In plain words, you get the crown of victory by being faithful. Verse 36, hang in there until the end. Don't let anyone take your crown and promise from you now. You're too close to the end. So stay with it all the way to the finish line. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming again, but there's going to be a tarrying time. There's going to be a time when people will wonder, is he coming or isn't he coming? Remember the uh, parable of the ten virgins. They were all waiting because he wasn't showing up on time. And what happened? Some of them got sloppy in their Christian experience, while the others remained faithful. Are you remaining faithful? Are you getting sloppy in your Christian experience? In Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4, it's quoted here, Christ, the expected one, will come very soon. And my friends, that is very true. I remember one time when I was in college, I had just become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and we were in a car on our way to a prayer meeting of another denomination. And I remember there were three girls sitting in the back and there were a couple of us guys up front. And someone asked me about how long I'd been, you know, the church, in the church and all. And I started telling them. And I said, I can't wait. I want to do all I can to help spread the gospel so that Christ will come back soon. And a girl behind me, she leaned over and she said, 
Bob, how long you been an Adventist? I said, well, it's been about three months now. She said, I thought so. Don't worry, it'll wear off. And you know, unfortunately, how many times that happened? I remember right there, I made a determination by the grace of God, I'm not going to allow it to wear off. We've got to have that Christian experience, that first love experience that we had with Jesus and not let it wear off. Be faithful. He's coming soon. He promised to do so. Believe his promises. Hebrews 10.38, and we're almost done. Now the just shall live by faith. That is taken from Habakkuk. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. Paul picks up on that theme, and then he passes it on to Martin Luther. But it was in the Old Testament before it was in the New Testament. So the Old Testament teaches righteousness by faith, if you look at it. And it's the same message in both. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, now there's that word draw back again, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Remember, he wants us to draw nigh to God. But the devil wants us to draw back, away from God. And in so doing, Christ has no pleasure in us. He doesn't delight in us. That's why I said before, Christianity is not for wimps. It takes fortitude to be a Christian because if you are living a godly life in Christ Jesus, there will be those who will pick on you and persecute you. But hang in there. Don't let it discourage you. In Romans 1.17 and Habakkuk 3 and 4, both share the theme, the just shall live by faith, a favorite Pauline theme. It displeases God to see his people draw back, especially when they're so near to the end of the promise. And then the last verse, verse 39. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You know, Paul doesn't leave us with a negative. He leaves us with a positive. You notice that? Paul encourages the Hebrews by letting them know that he has confidence in them, that they will not give up their faith, but continue on until salvation is realized. And in chapter 11, he will give many examples of those who stood fast, even in difficult times, and believed God's promises, even unto salvation. My friends, the, there's a modern book of Acts being written today. And our lives are being entered into it. And I wonder if people looked back on our lives, would we stand firm or we, would we be like Demas who would pull away unto his own destruction? But Paul says, I have confidence in you that you're going to stick to it to the end. What a wonderful way to end that chapter. So in summarizing, I have five points I want to make. The sacrificial sin offerings are no longer of any use since Christ atoned for sin. Secondly, Psalm 46 through 8 is worded differently in the Old and the New Testaments 
due to the translations that are being used. Thirdly, God wants the law written in our hearts and not just on tables of stone. Fourthly, the theme of this chapter is the just shall live by faith. And fifthly, the fourth warning of Hebrews is given to warn people not to draw back from the faith in and of Christ. Those are the themes. Well, I'm ten minutes over, but that's why I made a quick quiz, a true-false quiz. So you got your papers in front of you. It's quiz time. Let me give it to you in a hurry, okay? Number one, the moral and the ceremonial laws were nailed to Jesus' cross, true or false. Don't tell me. Write it on your quiz sheet. The moral and ceremonial laws were nailed to Jesus' cross, true or false. Number two, Psalm 46 through 8 is worded differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament, true or false. Number three, Jesus entered the most holy place when he ascended from earth, true or false. Number four, Tahagia means the holy places or the holy things, true or false. Number five, there would be no need for the judgment if the blood of animals could bring forgiveness of sins, true or false. And then the sixth question, which is the bonus question. The fourth warning of Hebrews is against drawing back, true or false. Okay? Now, I have confidence in you. I know you got them all right. The moral and the ceremonial laws were nailed to Jesus' cross. False. The ceremonial law was nailed to the cross, not the moral law. Okay? Trick question. Number two, Psalm 46 through 8 is worded differently in the Old and New Testament. Yes. Remember it said in one place he had ears, another place it said a body you had prepared for me. But they were just using different idioms. Number three, Jesus entered the most holy place when he ascended from earth to heaven. False. He went to the holy place, not the most holy place. Okay. Uh, for Tahagia means the holy places or the holy things. That's true. Yes, it does. In that context, the way it's used there, that's true. Number five. There would be no need of the judgment if the blood of animals could bring forgiveness of sins. That's true. Paul says so. And then the last one, the fourth warning of Hebrews is against drawing back. That was true. Anybody get them all right? Oh, good. You get the gold star. Okay. Your homework assignment, reread chapter 10, and for next time, read chapter 11. I want to tell you, there's some people in chapter 11 that I think... Paul should have asked my counsel before he wrote that chapter. Because he's got some people in there that I'm not sure I would have put in there. I don't think I would have let them in. And there's some other people that 
I think should be included that he left out. And I think Paul just better get my counsel the next time he writes something like that. Because he's dead, he won't be doing that anyway. All right. But as you read that chapter, make your own decisions about these people and invite somebody else to join us. Until then, shalom. God bless you all. Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us in this long chapter. All 39 verses were packed with important truths messages that you have for us. Help us truly to be your people, sanctified in thy sight. And through us, Lord, use us to sanctify others. In Jesus' name, amen.